0: One thing, I mean, you folks, everybody knows Josh is from Michigan, right? And we all love him anyway. Um, and he's such a big fan of, you know, the Michigan Wolverines. And this coming, sa- this coming summer, we're going to uh, Columbus, um, Ohio for the Columbus uh, annual conference. But one of the elders from Cornerstone is going to be joining us for this trip. And this guy is from Columbus. He's a graduate of Ohio State University Law School. And, uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to him and Josh, like, making fun of each other all week while while I watch. Last year at annual conference, on three separate serving occasions while we were eating, Josh was wearing that stupid Michigan hat that he wears all the time, and the waitress refused to serve him. Three, three separate times because they were like somehow linked to Ohio on some level and it was just glorious. It was, it was wonderful. I so enjoyed it. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how Ohio goes this, this, this next time around. And I will, I will publicly play Josh in one-on-one in front of you folks at any point in time and we'll see what happens. That being said, take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter four. It, it is good to be, uh, in ministry with friends and, uh, I appreciate the connection that I have to Parker Ford Church historically as a kid you know playing in your old church parking lot and uh now as um as you know a fellow minister in the kingdom um uh, cornerstone uh, the church that I pastor is in Lebanon uh Lebanon PA and um uh the folks there said to be sure to greet you in the name of Jesus. And um, they pray for you and think about you and appreciate the ministry um, of Parker Ford Church. Um, Tim and Josh have both served in multiple ways at Cornerstone over the course of the last, you know, five, ten years that I've been there. And um, it's just it's been a great synergy um, with the, our churches connected up and down Route 422. And what God is doing in the 422 corridor is, is really, really exciting stuff. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm here today to talk to you about Lent. And to give you Jay's weird perspective on Lent, which is what I do. I sort of like think in paradigms or pictures, um, try and rethink why we do what we do. Um, and so I'm going to preach my sermon backwards today. Um, so that's weird. Uh, I'm going to start off with... Uh, some applications, and then I'm going to end with my theology, because I want to leave you with the feeling of, of the theology that supports these things. But I think the applications are important, too. Um, so that, that's sort of how we're going to work it. God actually gave me a something of a more formal homily today that I'll actually be, uh, be reading to you. Um, I, I love to write, and um, God speaks to me in, in writing a lot as, as I write. So I'm going to bring that um, a little bit for the second half of of the message this morning. But the whole thing is based around the concept of time. And uh, here in Colossians, uh, it speaks to sort of the, the heart of what we're going after today. Colossians 4, we'll start in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, Making the best use of your time. Some of your translations will say they're redeeming the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, Lent is uh, an interesting concept to some of us. To some of us, Lent's completely normal. I grew up not celebrating Lent or not 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 um, using Lent as part of my my spiritual life. I grew up in the Baptist tradition, and um, Lent just wasn't something that we did. You know, um, a lot of my Catholic friends celebrated Lent each year, which I knew was a time when their parents took took something away from them. You know, where they couldn't eat candy or something like that. You know, and it just sounded really like a bummer. You know, when it came down to it, like sorry, sorry, dude, you can't eat fast food for. For you know, 40 days while I sit there and eat in front of them, um, you know, it's that 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 kind of a thing. Lent was never part of what I did. Lent, at its very core, um, is for the purpose of uh, having a set apart time to make Easter better. That's the whole point of Lent. The whole point of Lent is to esteem the resurrection. That that's why Lent is in place. Alright, uh, this is a church tradition, right? You're not going to find Lent in scripture. Um, but we do have 2,000 years of church history bolstering who we are today. And for the majority of that, of those 2,000 years, Lent has been something that has been observed by a good part of the church. And it's something that I think is very much worth reclaiming. Can Lent go bad? Sure, absolutely. Lent can go bad. So it can, you know, just about anything can go bad. That's not the point. The point is what is God doing? What's He saying? And what does it mean for us to step into these things? So by way of application, when it comes to celebrating Lent, and as you Parker Ford Church, think about remembering Lent and walking in and through this Lenten season. Um, I've got some points of application for you before I build my theology for you. So this, like I said, this is backwards. Number one application. Lent is not about self-discipline. Lent is about God discipline. Right, this is about you being a, a better disciple of Jesus. Disciples require disciple discipline, right? These two things go hand in hand. But this is not about just you getting yourself in line, This is about you aligning yourself with God. This is not about self-discipline as much as it is about God discipline. At its core, Lent is about your personal intimate relationship with Christ. That's really what it comes down to. Um, It's not about observing a structure. It's about stepping into a structure that God leads you into. But the point is always receiving the discipline of the Lord, not self-discipline. The goal is to be a better disciple, to bolster that relationship not to be a better employee of God, right? which is sometimes what we trip back to when it comes down to it. So don't do Lent in order to be self-disciplined. right? If you're looking for some reasons why not to do Lent, um, which is sort of how I think of things, don't, don't do Lent to be more self-disciplined. Um, step into Lent in order to receive God's discipline. Secondly, don't practice Lent because it seems like a good way to spend your time. Right? Don't do Lent because it seems like a good way to spend your time. That phrase itself is the problem. Western Christians, we we look at time as a commodity, a thing. The same way we look at dollars and cents a lot of times. Time is not meant to be spent. You're not going to find the spending of time in Scripture. That concept isn't there. Investing, valuing, prioritizing walking in first love right this these are the concepts that we see built in and around god's idea of time spending time that's an american way to think about it so it always becomes then about budgeting time everybody in this room is busy like how many times have you heard that everybody's busy everybody's got tons of things to do everybody also has the same uh, 24 hours in the day to do with those that 24 hours whatever it is that they feel that they should do or that god wants them to do don't think about lent as a way to spend your time right our uh our Calendar tells us too much about ourselves. And we bend to a cultural calendar very, very often. The height of our cultural calendar tends to be Christmas, right? The height of our cultural calendar tends to be like this big buildup between Thanksgiving and Christmas where there's, you know, that that's the point of time in our calendar when there's goodness and, you know, f- and and everybody's feeling good about each other and we're all putting change into the Salvation Army buckets and we're serving at soup kitchens here and there, you know, and we're being good toward one another. And, and you know, this is our high point. We give gifts and we celebrate fat men in red suits and flying reindeer. And our children are happy and, and families are happy, you know, and all these things the problem with that is that's a cultural calendar. If you think about God's stewardship of time and God's calendar, that really changes things around. In God's estimation, Easter's the whole point, right? The whole point is to build up toward Easter, and that's what our church history tells us too. That's the reason for Lent, is to capitalize, to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. So it's not about spending your time. It's about stepping into God's time it's about stepping into the thing that god's value, that god values above what culture tells us to value your time is not meant to be spent it's meant to be invested right it's a stewardship that you're given and the way that you walk in that has everything to do with aligning ourselves with god so let's align ourselves with God's calendar, too. I mean, God set up his people with festivals, with systems, with seasons, right? The, the the church has adopted some of these things, shifted some of these things. And following a church calendar can be a really, really beautiful way to experience God, especially because when you think about you're aligning with, I mean, 2,000 years of saints and people who have gone before. It's beautiful. But don't practice Lent because it seems like a good way to spend your time. Do practice Lent in order to honor God with your time. Number three. Don't practice Lent in order to indulge. A lot of people will put up the 40 days of self-denial in Lent in order to have the self-indulgence that prefaces Lent. You folks have Fasnach Day around here, right? Everybody know what Fasnach Day is? Fasnach Day is a time for us to gorge on, well, in Lebanon anyway, donuts, for an entire day before Lent begins, Right? The, the reason why Knock Day lands in that strange, like, February-ish time is because it's, it's a precursor to Lent. It's a time for everybody to get in one massive, like, self-indulgent thing. Did you know that Mardi Gras is a religious holiday? Fat Tuesday is the day before Ash Wednesday. The whole point of Fat Tuesday is to have this massive party when we're just completely self-indulgent and everybody's getting drunk and having sex and doing all kinds of crazy things because the next day you're not allowed to do anything for 40 days. So let's get it all in, you know. So do not practice Lent in order to be self-indulgent. You know, you could get a lot of really fun stuff in in 20 24-hour 20, period just to put up with 40, 40 days of, of, you know, self-denial. Don't do that. No, don't do that. This isn't about self-indulgence. This isn't about self-indulgence at all. This is very much a way for you to experience joy. Self-indulgence is always linked to happiness, right? God's not so concerned with happiness. God's very concerned with joy. Lent is supposed to be a point of joy for you. It should be a way that you receive joy. Number four, do not practice Lent in order to prove something to God. God is completely cool with you right now, outside of Lent. God is not more impressed with you if you choose to uh, fast from something for Lent and you make it through having done a good job fasting from that. God's not like, wow, I love you more now. Good job. He's not more upset with you if you don't. That's not the point. Actually, if you choose to fast from something for Lent, You should really choose something that I mean is seriously stretching, so that you need to receive grace in it. Right. So if you choose to fast from something, make it something that really pushes you, not something that's easy. You know, anybody can give up one cup of coffee in the morning. Like, be creative. Think about something that that you really value that will require you to receive grace when you fail in it during the course of Lent, because the enemy is going to want to shame you. Right. So. Think about it in that way. Do, do, don't practice Lent to prove something to God. God loves you. You, he has your, you have his favor. You and here are, are are because of Jesus right. So allow it to be that and then do Lent from that spot of identity, from that spot of belonging. Uh, fifthly, don't necessarily think about food. We always oftentimes link Lent and, and food and that makes a lot of sense if you think about antiquity, right? Because if... in, In older cultures, if somebody gave up like one meal a day, you're not just giving up a meal. You're giving up the preparation of that meal. And if you don't have tools, if you don't have a modern kitchen, I mean, it could take two to three hours to prepare a meal. So to give up a meal for Lent meant that you were claiming two, three, four hours of your day that you could focus on God. right, so now we get fast forward to... our. Now, where lunch for us consists of, you know, running into Subway, running out and eating it on the way back to the office, you know, and you get 15 minutes, oh, I'm giving up one meal a day, which means I've, I've I've reclaimed like 15 minutes for God. Isn't that great? Well, yeah, sure, that's great, but don't necessarily think about food. Think about, though, what feeds you. Don't necessarily think about food, but you should think about what feeds you. I'll tell you what feeds you. They have plugs and on and off buttons and screens. Right, if you're thinking about fasting, think along those lines. Think about what it is that feeds you. Right. Think about the amount of time that you are looking at a screen in your day and what it's giving you, what it's telling you about you, or not telling you about you. Right, think about those. Think in terms of not necessarily food, but what it is that feeds you. And as you do that, all of this is with an eye toward what Colossians tells us here in chapter four, particularly in verse five. Lent is absolutely meant to be seen. That's very important. Lent is absolutely meant to be seen. The world is supposed to look at Christians practicing Lent and go, what the heck are they doing? That's absolutely right. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, making the best use of your time. Lent is that set-apart time when you walk in wisdom with God in this unique way with an idea of it pushing forward into the resurrection. The whole point of Lent is to make the resurrection bigger, to make the resurrection of Jesus more glorious. It's a time of of uh, discipline with God, of a focused, intentional work with God to increase your intimacy with him, to focus on the things that feed you that aren't him and to ask from him in this time, what is it that about me that I need to know? All right, so that's application. Everybody got the application? Application is good. We got that. We'll take that box. We will put it over here, all right? Pull those things back out later today. I want to go into the theology of it now. And and for this, I feel like God gave me a, a, a really specific word, um, uh, f- for you, uh, for Cornerstone as well, the church that, that I pastor in in Lebanon, and um, so I'm going to read this to you. Uh, at Cornerstone, you know, there's two there's two ways to, to preach, pretty much. You know what I mean? Like you can get up there and you can go at it, you know, and just 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 throwing spiritual food at people, you know, and it just and some of it goes, you know, people are sitting there and they're thinking, and spiritual food hits them in the mouth and it goes in, and they don't even know that it went in, but it tastes great and they leave, you know, ha- having eaten. Other times, you prepare a nice meal. You know, and then you invite people to come and they gotta work for it. They gotta come, they gotta sit down, they gotta use a fork and knife. It's not a spiritual food fight so much. This is one of those. This is one of those. You know, I've heard Tim preach before. Dude can throw food. You know, like he's he is passionate and he knows the scriptures, you know. Man, that's great. I love sitting under Tim's teaching. This one I'm inviting you to the table. Right. The table's been prepared. I prepared it this week for you. So come with me and do the hard work of sitting and picking up the fork and knife and thinking together about what it means to um uh, to understand Lent from God's perspective. God, uh, lead us into what it means for us to know you in this way, uh, to understand time from your perspective, to understand your ways, your rhythms, your systems, your government, your economy, like all of these things we need from you. So reveal them to us, Father, as we contemplate with you um, this Lenten season. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciples had been through the ringer, And after a three-year ordeal like that, it can be understood why they asked what they did. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not a dumb question, and it's not a bad question. That question is nothing at all like the other dumb or bad questions they asked while following Jesus, speaking redundancies and sputtering recantations, all layered neatly over clear words of truth that the Son of God had just finished saying. Indeed, this was a very good question. It spoke of their faith. It spoke of their observation that all that needed to be accomplished was fulfilled. It spoke of their heartfelt knowledge that Jesus was their Messiah. In their minds, it was now time for the kingdom of God to come. The wait was over. Not just their personal waiting. The waiting that the disciples of Jesus were enduring was a waiting that had been endured by the people of God for thousands of years. When would they be free? When would the promises made to Israel come to pass? They had suffered oppression at the hands of the Egyptians, the Midianites, the Meunites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Edomites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And through it all, the people of God waited and waited for their deliverance, for their Messiah to be revealed. Now these disciples knew that that wait was over. The weight of thousands of years and millions of people culminated in the the declaration of a Messiah who was so powerful he could defeat death and return from the grave. There was no disputing what was to, to the disciples observable fact. Jesus spent three years as a nomadic rabbi moving all over the nation of Israel with his ministry. His teaching and claims were validated by his miracles and his way of being took such root with the people that they were ready to crown him king of the Jews. A short week later, the same people were calling for his crucifixion. At the death of Christ, the wind of expectation left their sails, and the cold water of reality hit them in the face. The grief was overwhelming, and their sorrow threatened to blot out even the brightest light from their souls. Hope had gone. Jesus was dead. Then, as quickly as he had gone, he was alive, risen again, just as he said, And on the flip side of things, Jesus' cryptic statements didn't seem so cryptic anymore. There was no disputing their senses. He wasn't some hologram. He was real. He was alive. He invited them to touch his wounds. He ate with them and spoke with them. But when he came back from being dead, he wasn't quite the same. He came and went a lot. One minute he'd be there, the next he would disappear. Punctuality had never been his strong suit, but presence had. And he was acting strangely. His disciples kept waiting for some sermon, marching orders, even a strong sentence of some kind. Instead, he simply told Peter to stop fishing and start shepherding. Not exactly, it's time to publicly humiliate the Romans and kick them out of here kind of stuff. A little presence here, a little meal there, a little talk here, a little prophecy there. But certainly no, let's go get organized and publicly humiliate the Romans and kick them out of here. So here are your marching orders kind of stuff. No great pep rallies of Jewish nationalism. No architectural plans to rebuild David's tabernacle and throne. No, it's time to vanquish, conquer, and go publicly humiliate the Romans and kick them out of here. Oh, and by the way, you guys get to be my victorious generals. None of that. But the disciples were patient. And they came from a patient people. They watched and waited and waited. They had waited for several millennia. What was 40 days more? The resurrection of Jesus is a powerful thing that you don't just gloss over. And when someone comes back from the dead, the last thing you demand from them is a timetable. But on the day of Jesus' ascension, it was just too perfect an opportunity. I mean, it was just them, just like it used to be. Their small group, minus the betrayer, and Jesus up on a mountain, just like old times. The question was the blue elephant in the room, and someone had to ask it. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And remember, this was a good question. Jesus' response was simple. God's times and dates are not your concern. This is not a blow-off response. The timing of God is not the concern of humans. It's a statement of truth, not rebuke. We always want to know when God is going to do something. We think there is power in knowing the future or understanding the present. To know the future or understand the present is to remove fear from our hearts. It speaks of certainty and finality. To know the future or understand the present means that we can have a bit of power, a bit of power over time, the thing to which we must all submit, and that is the beauty of Lent. Lent makes you stop and wait. As the Son of God, as the Bride of Christ, we are together absolutely victorious in Christ, But we still wait for our full release from this body of sin, as Paul said. Lent is a portion of time within time to remember, receive, and reflect upon some very basic things. Time will win. Time is final. Time never stops. Time limits us. Time does not listen. Time does not understand. Time is without hope or compassion. Time is and time will always be. So Jesus speaks to them about another piece of time, a time when he gives them that which is better, which is what they thought they had when they received him back from the grave. They had waited so long for the Messiah, and now he was again telling them to wait. One more thing about time, though. God controls time and God uses time. God inserts himself into time and loves his children through it, and that, again, is the beauty of Lent. Lent is a time for you to stop your own concepts of time and again realize that God speaks through time and moves in it for the good of his purposes and his people. If on that mountain, just before Jesus ascended, the disciples looked backward instead of forward, they might have realized something. It had been 40 days. The number 40 is important. It's impossible to state how crucial 40 is to the Jewish people. It might be the most important people there, important number there is to the people of God. Think about it. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah waited 40 days to send out the dove. Isaac waited 40 years to marry Rebekah. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness between fleeing Egypt and returning to Egypt. The children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain with God before delivering the law. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain with God after the people's idolatry with the golden calf. Joshua was 40 when he went to spy on Canaan. Joshua and Caleb spied on Canaan for 40 days. Jewish law said no more than 40 lashes. Under Othniel, the Israelites had peace for 40 years. Then they worshipped idols again. Under Barak, The Israelites had peace for 40 years, then they worshipped idols again. Under Gideon, the Israelites had peace for 40 years, then they worshipped idols again. For 40 days, Goliath mocked the God of Israel every morning. Saul reigned 40 years, David reigned 40 years, Solomon reigned 40 years, Joash reigned 40 years, Josiah reigned 40 years, Elijah hid at Mount Horeb for 40 days before God spoke to him, Ezekiel lay on his side for 40 days to represent the 40 years of Judah's sin, Nineveh was given 40 days to repent. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days passed between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. There is nothing magical about 40, but there is something deeply meaningful and symbolic. The number 40 is a time of probation. It is not a time of condemnation. It is a time of judgment, chastisement, discipline, training. A 40 is what a father gives to a son to train and discipline him. When the discipline of a 40 is received, it always births something new in those who received it. Again, if they receive it, 40 speaks of waiting and testing of hope that is present in heartache and expectation. When a 40 is ignored or pushed against, it results in catastrophe and a forsaking of that son's inheritance. After his resurrection, Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days, giving them many proofs of his resurrection and disciplining his disciples to wait for that which was better. The disciples received the 40 that the Lord had planned for them and thus received the Holy Spirit, that which Jesus told them was better. Jesus ascended to heaven after 40 days. To live through a 40 that God chooses for your discipline and training requires spiritual discipline and blessing of waiting and hoping. For us 21st century Americans, that is where things become difficult. We tend to think of waiting as passive, an inactive posture of passing time, so that we might have that which we hope for. Oftentimes, waiting is thought of negatively because it is associated with fear. We fear that which we do not know, and who knows what is at the end of waiting. A typical American concept of waiting is a doctor's office. Or you walk in and you check in. They they even tell you what you're going to do next. Please sit down in the waiting room. And what do you do? You sit there and do nothing, right? Except spend time, probably with a small screen in front of your face, right? Or a magazine for three years ago, and that's waiting, which is complete passivity, complete just openness at this point, and the doctor, I mean, if anybody else, doctors really care about them? You know, like, uh, I'm going to get to you folks. Right, right away, 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock appointment, never happens. You sit there and you wait. And he spends your time for you. And he can do that because he's the doctor, right? This is an American way we think about waiting. This is not God's way of thinking about waiting. We may get what we hope for. We may not when we're done waiting. We may become what we wanted or we may be told to wait longer. Fear-based waiting is not the way of the Old Testament saint. The people who lived according to the Old Covenant understood an active posture of waiting. When you wait as a people for hundreds and thousands of years, lifetime upon lifetime, you learn to adjust the manner in which you wait. To wait on God is to actively look for and hope for that which had promised, that which God had promised would come to pass. And He may or may not let you know what it is He is bringing about. Waiting is not a passing of time. To pass time is to miss the moment. And if you think like an Old Testament saint, missing the moment could mean missing the Messiah. So the Jewish concept of waiting is right here. This moment is right here. And now this moment is right here. And this moment is right here. And you're asking, what am I doing in this moment? Like, what is this thing for? Like, why am I so actively anticipating it? But when you've been told your entire life that you are the chosen people of God and God will rescue you, God is sending someone who will give you everything that you've ever been told that you will have, the greatest dreams and hopes and desires of your heart are right here. You learn to wait differently. This isn't a sit back, kick back with my iPhone or a magazine and wait to get called on. This is a uh, active. This is, this is the Jewish way of, of waiting, right? It's right here. This moment I will never get again. And I'm not going to miss what God has for me in it. The psalmist says, my soul is waiting for the Lord. I rely on God's word. My soul is longing for the Lord more than the guard for the dawn. Let the guard count on the daybreak and Israel on the Lord, because with the Lord there is mercy and fullness of redemption. Henri Nallon, in his essay, The Path of Waiting, says it like this, Waiting is active. Most of us consider waiting as something very passive, a hopeless state determined by events totally out of our hands. The bus is late, we can't do anything about it, so we have to sit there and just wait. It is not difficult to understand the irritation people feel when somebody says, Just wait. Words like that push us into passivity. But there is none of this passivity in scripture, he goes on. Those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know that what they are waiting for is growing from the ground on which they are standing. Right here is a secret for us about waiting. If we wait in the conviction that a seed has been planted and that something has already begun, it changes the way that we wait. Active waiting implies being fully present to the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and and that we want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, believing that this moment is the moment. Waiting requires reliance on God. It requires trust in God's word to wait in expectation to truly seize the moment in which we are called to wait requires deep, deep hope. That is the beauty of Lent. The very beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, reminds us of this. Truly, we are fable. It is certain that we will die. From dust we were made, and to dust we shall return. And truly, the hope of Christ and his resurrection, and our resurrection in him is sure, and we hope in his word. And we wait for our resurrection, and we wait for his return, with glorious expectation, the people of God wait. Lent is 40 days for a reason. It is a time not only for self-examination and purification, which are often perfectly fine motives in observing and engaging Lent, but can also serve as a self-imposed time of probationary hope. The, word, the, word, the biblical word judge means to separate. There is good and there is evil. To judge biblically is to separate those, light and dark, Truth and untruth, right and wrong, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, right? A sober separating. Our lives should constantly contain the prayers of the psalmist. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the, according to the integrity that is in me. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. I love your judgments. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Search me and know me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lent calls us to a posture of the heart that opens ourselves not just to ourselves, but to our God whose judgments are right and good and true. We need to be separated. We need to be seen. We need to be cleansed. Lent is that time of deep openness before and with God, whereby he separates and judges and cleanses. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This verse is not a shameful public exposure of our deep selves to the world with God pointing his finger and declaring to all who would see how dirty, nasty, and worthless we are. That's not God. This is a loving father who sees that his children get dirty and their hearts become hard and their minds are deceived and their spirits receive painful accusations and their relationships get messy and their hearts are troubled. And their souls carry pain, and their grief goes without comfort, and their addictions win, and their shame speaks loudly, and their despair is real, and their hope is compromised. In the midst of these realities, and through the ministry of our loving Father, why would we not call for his word to cut deep and to divide? What fear can reign in the presence of this gracious and loving dad? Who exposes us not to shame, but to redeem. Not publicly, but through the gentle touch of his Holy Spirit. Yes, Lent is a season of meditation on frailty. It is a time of judgment and examination, but it is so much more. Lent is a season of hope, expectation, intimacy, and grace. The times and seasons of God may not be for us to know, but the hope of Christ. That is our active waiting on Him, seizing every moment for His glory. That is our inheritance. And so I call to you, my brothers and sisters, to embrace the waiting to which God is calling you. Embrace the 40 that God has chosen for you. And through your waiting, your walking, your pain, and your prosperity, through the whole of your journey, journey valiantly hope in Christ with great expectation. Because as the psalmist said, with the Lord, there is mercy and fullness of redemption. Let's pray.